Every October, leading scientists across the globe brace themselves, waiting, hoping for a call. A call telling them that they've won a Nobel Prize, arguably the most coveted award for any scientist to receive. But this episode is not about the Nobel Prize. It's about its younger, much more fun sibling, the Ig Nobel Prize. The Ig Nobel Prize celebrates discoveries and inventions that are unusual and imaginative, things that make people laugh and then think. Ig Nobel Prize winners often win for research they were doing as a fun side project or something they unexpectedly stumbled upon that might not make it into a more traditional science journal. Like, for example, a study showing that when people meet for the first time and feel attracted to each other, their heart rates synchronize, or how tail loss in scorpions leads to constipation and also decreased locomotion. If those studies and the title of this episode didn't make it clear, you're in for a fun one. Welcome to Tiny Matters. I'm Deboki Chakravarti, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sam Jones. In today's episode, Sam and I will be sharing a few of our favorite Ig Nobel Prize wins with you, which were not easy to pick since 10 awards have been chosen every year since 1991. But we'll start at the beginning with the creation of the Ig Nobel. To learn about the prize's humble beginnings, we called up Mark Abrams, editor of the Annals of Improbable Research, a bi-monthly magazine dedicated to the more humorous side of academic work. Mark was one of the founders of the Ig Nobel Prize, and the idea for the ceremony came to him in 1990 as a way of showcasing some of the unique work that was coming across his desk each day. Mark, who's based in Boston, mentioned his Ig Nobel ceremony idea to someone he bumped into at MIT. They asked Mark, do you have a place to hold the ceremony? And when Mark said no, they said, why not here? So that first year, Mark put a notice about the ceremony online. This is 1991, so that was pretty cutting edge. I am very impressed. The ceremony was free, but people had to go pick up tickets ahead of time at MIT. Mark had no idea if anyone would show up. But then, all the tickets were gone within a day. We had the ceremony, which was a lot of fun, and we were half making it up as we went along. And I'm pretty sure that everybody there had about the same thought in mind that I did that night, which was you look around the room, you see all these people, you think at any moment some grown-up person is going to walk into this room and tell us to stop this and go home. But nobody did. So we, we had the ceremony. It got a lot of press attention around the world in the next few days and weeks. And so the next year, it became fairly easy to do it on a much bigger scale. We moved it to the biggest auditorium at MIT, and that just kept happening over the years. The fifth year, we moved it down the street a couple miles to Harvard, kept you know, kind of um, growing and growing and growing in its odd way. After that first year, Mark began receiving a stream of letters and emails from people suggesting future winners. 
And that turned into a flood, which continues to this day. Every day, I get a little flood of stuff from quite literally around the world, most of it from people I've never met, of things that at least they think um, will make other people laugh and then think. And one year, when I became curious about the numbers of this, you know, well, how big is this, this flow that's, that's pulsing in here every day? So I kept loose track for a whole year of how many things were coming in. And that year, we got something like 9,000 nominations for Ig Nobel Prizes. And the Ig Nobel event itself is really something else. Mark alluded to it earlier by saying that at the first ceremony, they were thinking at any moment, a grown-up would come and break things up and send people home. It is full of enthusiastic chatter and banter and even event-condoned paper airplanes. It happens at Harvard University in a place called Sanders Theater. It's just a beautiful, uh, extremely dignified place. And if you're going to be doing something funny, you want to do it in a really dignified place. The building adds <laughs> a lot. And there's a tradition that started in the second year, back when we were doing this at MIT. A lot of people brought little stacks or big stacks of paper to the ceremony with them which they then make into paper airplanes and they spend the whole night throwing paper airplanes at the stage. And the people on stage spend the night throwing paper airplanes back into the audience. You're allowed to do it at the Ig Nobel ceremony. And to keep the ceremony running on time, a kid, usually around eight years old, is brought in with the permission of their parents who are often fans of the Ig Nobel. That kid's job is to make sure award acceptance speeches don't run over time. And so this little girl is part of the ceremony. She sits on stage the whole time. We explain to the winners, this is what's going to happen if your speech gets too long. Whenever this little girl feels that somebody has talked long enough, she lets them know. Long enough is about one minute. <laughs> so the winner gets up there, starts talking, and after a minute or so goes by, if the winner's still talking, the little girl on the other side of the stage stands up and walks all the way across the stage up to that person who's at the microphone talking, looks up at that person and says, please stop, I'm bored, please stop, I'm bored. And she doesn't stop <laughs> until they do. And it really works. The, the first year we did that, the whole ceremony was an hour shorter than it was the year before. That is such a good idea. I think eight-year-olds should be invited to attend every conference, every talk, every acceptance speech, just to keep the people in check, to keep them humble and on time. Yeah, I agree. It's so good. Mark described this kid as typically being an eight-year-old girl with ice water in her veins. And I thought that was so funny. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Eight-year-olds are ruthless. They really are. So hopefully now that you have an idea of what the ceremony is like, let's talk about what's behind the Ig Nobel. That little catchphrase, research that makes people laugh and then think, it came to Mark in the early days of the awards when he was talking with a reporter about one of the winners. The conversation didn't start off all that well, with the reporter laughing and making disparaging remarks about one of the projects that had won. It was the invention of a pair of odor filtering underwear, which on the surface may sound kind of silly, but there was much more to it. So Mark shared the entire backstory with the reporter, 
how the underwear were invented by a married couple where the wife suffered from a chronic inflammatory bowel disease called Crohn's disease, which you've likely heard of before because it's not that uncommon. She unfortunately was experiencing some smelly side effects that people with Crohn's sometimes have to deal with. And these underwear that had a version of a carbon filter built in were helping manage that. And I think that's a really sweet and wonderful story. The moment I mentioned that to him, I could hear over the telephone, I could hear that he suddenly understood. He said, oh, my best friend has Crohn's disease. That's a terrible disease. And at that moment, I said this phrase that, yeah, you know, this, this prize is really about things that make people, first makes people laugh and then it makes them think. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wrote down that phrase, makes people laugh, then think. And the next bunch of conversations I had with strangers, especially with reporters, I would say that phrase to them and they all understood right away. It's things that are so utterly surprising that the moment you hear about them, you laugh. That, that just, it's just your automatic reaction. The thing is such a surprise, it's so completely unexpected that your immediate reaction is to laugh. And it's also surprising in a way that, wow, that really grabs your attention and you're going to keep thinking about it. So let's get into some of those prizes that will make you laugh and then think. Starting with someone who 10 years after winning an Ig Nobel Prize won an actual Nobel Prize. It's quite the combo. I know, it's like the EGOT for scientists. The scientist is Andre Geim, who in 2010 won the Nobel Prize in Physics alongside colleague Konstantin Novoselov for the discovery of graphene, which is an arrangement of carbon atoms that's only one atom thick, but quite strong and a good conductor of heat and electricity, making it a huge deal within the technology world. We've added a link to a video about this in the episode description if you really want to do a deep dive. But enough about graphene. We're here for the Ig Nobel, and Andre Geim knocked that one out of the park in 2000 with a levitating frog. There were no Harry Potter spells cast, to my knowledge, just some good old physics on display. The levitating frog was an example of a phenomenon called diamagnetism, where a magnet creates a magnetic force in the material or object it's near. But that force is in the opposite direction. And if it's strong enough, it might, say, keep an object, like a frog, lifted in the air. No one necessary. Another Ig Nobel Prize I love was given out in 2018 in chemistry but was for work that was actually done in 1990, where researchers measured how good human saliva is as a cleaning agent for dirty surfaces, specifically ones that are more fragile, coated in, say, gold leaf or delicate paint. They actually came upon the idea seeing that conservators helping preserve fragile pottery and paintings would opt to use their own spit. Apparently, these conservators were onto something because spit turned out to be better than other cleaners they tested. That is very useful and a great way to save money, right? An Ig Nobel that I thought was very fun and also from 2018 was the biology Ig Nobel given to a research group who showed that wine experts can identify by smell the presence of a single fly in a glass of wine. I didn't know this, but apparently female fruit flies emit a pheromone that seems to have quite the unpleasant scent that can be detected by humans. Researchers were able to identify this pheromone 
And it was powerful enough that the panel of experts could say, yep, there's a female fly in that glass of wine. I would love to blame flies, but I think sometimes the wine I buy is so cheap, it's just going (laughs) to smell off and has nothing to do with fly pheromones. (laughs) All right. So last one, but certainly not the least. In 2021, there was a very fun Ig Nobel in chemistry given out to a team of researchers who analyzed the air inside movie theaters to test whether the odors produced by an audience could tell you what they were watching. Maybe a violent scene or romantic scene or something funny. To do this, the researchers first made sure that only fresh air was coming into the movie theater. You don't want odorant molecules from some random truck outside or person at the concession stand ruining the experiment. Then they connected machines called mass spectrometers to the exhaust of the ventilation system in the cinema. Mass spectrometry, or mass spec, is a really common tool used in analytical chemistry that measures the mass-to-charge ratio of molecules in a sample, helping scientists zero in on what those molecules could be. One of the researchers behind this work is Achim Edbauer. He doesn't study movie theater smells on the regular. He actually spends his days working as an atmospheric chemist at the Max Planck Institute for Chemistry in Germany. This was just a little side project he and his collaborators stumbled upon. But Achim told us that he had a lot of fun with it and was kind of surprised by what they found. What was in a way interesting or I found really striking, of course, that we are all humans. We are quite individual and depending on what you've eaten and done so far, of course, you will emit different things. And it's sometimes quite striking if you measure a lot of different people, you get lots of different results. But we're looking at the same movie, which was shown several times with different audiences. It was really funny to see that often at the same scenes when there was intense action or something else going on, there was always spikes happening. And sometimes you could even figure out by just looking at the time traces of your masses, oh, it must be that movie. It's really interesting that it's so, in that sense, predictable what a crowd does in sorts of emitting chemicals. One compound that they saw a lot was isoprene, particularly in movies that were rated for older audiences. In Germany, the rating system is different than here in the U.S., but this would be equivalent to a PG, PG PG-13, or R-rated movie compared to a G-rated flick. Isoprene is a molecule. It's related to uh, cholesterol synthesis and muscle movement and so on. And so we were thinking or we are speculating that depending on the intensity or frighteningness or action of a movie, of course, you involuntarily or without knowing you will move your muscles or get excited or something like that. And then maybe there is more isoprene release. And that might have made this molecule perfect for classifying a movie according to the age. I mean, we're not saying that we can do it perfectly by no means at all. It was more like a proof of principle, but isoprene definitely was an interesting molecule. Another fun odorant they picked up was ethanol. But unlike isoprene, it wasn't being produced by people. It was being consumed. There was a movie, the main actor was going into a bar and then he was drinking a beer. And it was really funny that at this moment, always the ethanol signal goes a bit crazy and always in the cinemas. And probably this means all the people, there, some of them will have beers as well. And when they see them, uh, the main actor drinking a beer, they maybe just were drinking their beer as well, even without noticing. And this was always really funny and this was always detectable. In this scene, ethanol went up. This is very funny to me. It's like people were just drinking after seeing this guy drink on screen and then breathing out some of the alcohol or ethanol in their beer. 
because we humans are very easily influenced. I think if this does not show the effectiveness of subliminal messaging, I'm not sure what does. For sure. I mean, how many times have I seen someone bite into a burger on screen or, okay, good example, Great British Baking Show. I see those baked goods and all of a sudden I'm making pumpkin bread while I'm watching. It's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Now I know how to get you to make me pumpkin bread. There you go. This was so fun. I love the Ig Nobel. I'm really hoping that one day I can cover it in person because I want to experience that ceremony. Absolutely. I think we should nominate this for Tiny Matters Field Trip 2023. For sure. Let's tiny show and tell. Yeah, let's do it. Duboki, do you want to go first this time? Do you want me to go first this time? I will go first. Perfect. I come bearing good news, which is that people agreed on something. (laughs) There was was an agreement. (laughs) And I feel like right now, anything that feels unifying in a way, I'm like, that sounds great. And even more fundamentally, this is important because it's about time, how we measure time. Okay. So have you ever heard of a leap second? I hadn't, but have you? No, only when it comes to leap, leap year, anything beyond that, I do not know. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like I didn't like have this concept, you know, that there's the leap day, but there's a leap second. And it was introduced in 1972 to help align two different ways that we have to measure time. One is the rotation of the earth. So that is astronomical time. But the other is using the vibration of cesium atoms. And that is international atomic time, um, which began like using that as a way to measure time began in 1967. And the thing about international atomic time is that it's a little bit faster than earth rotation time. And so this is why the leap second had to get introduced. So basically what would happen is whenever atomic time would get ahead of Earth's rotation by a second or like the time that astronomical time by a second, it would stop to let that astronomical time catch up to it. So there were 10 leap seconds introduced at first. And over time, I think 27 more have been added. The thing that is difficult about these leap seconds is that it's actually kind of hard to figure out where they're going to be needed. So it's hard to plan for them. And that makes it really difficult for a lot of computing systems, especially as they've gotten more connected, because a lot of our computing needs are so precise. Like people will need computers that are like precise to the billionth of a second. So adding in a leap second can really mess things up. It raises the possibility that things are going to crash. And that's why in Versailles, a group of people decided to get together to make the very important decision to get rid of the leap second, except the catch is it's not going to happen right away. The plan is for it to happen in 2035 because Russia voted against the leap second because their global navigational satellite system actually uses the leap second. So it's Mm. kind of a problem there, which is why... The leap second will not be abandoned right away. But the idea is that with this all like changing, all of these organizations that are dedicated to measuring things, that are dedicated to standardizing time, they're going to have to figure out how are we going to reconcile astronomic time with atomic time in the meantime. And then the leap second will be gone unless they figure out a way to use it without crashing computers, I guess. Yeah, that is is so interesting. What is the name of the organization that is specifically for measurements? Like, you know, measuring. In the U.S., it's NIST. The National Institute of Standards and Technology is the U.S. version. Um, So they were involved in this, but then there are also representatives from other countries as well. 
Yeah. And it's it's funny because you're like, wait, your job is just to make sure that measurements are as accurate as possible. That seems silly, but it's actually so fundamental to everything, right? Like you mentioned, servers are going to be crashing because of these leap seconds. The thing that my brain goes to is Y2K and that sense of like, oh, like time's going to completely mess up the way that our information is encoded and everything's going to come crashing. And like, luckily people kind of anticipated and were able to figure out a way to prevent everything from crashing. But yeah, I, I wonder if that's sort of like the similar kind of aspect of what would have, what could happen with leap seconds. So interesting. So for me, it's a big day because I have a physics tiny show and tell for you. But wow. it's a it's a very very neither silly of us did physics. a biology. <laughs> it's shocking. Yeah. Um, but I'm very I'm very proud of us. Yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> this one is about using physics to create a better urinal. <laughs> this one is not immediately relevant to us, but it is relevant to about half the population. So I felt. I felt like it was worthy of checking out and sharing with our listeners. For sure. So at the end of November, the American Physical Society's Division of Fluid Dynamics held a meeting in Indianapolis, and a bunch of research was presented at the meeting, including research on a better urinal. So scientists at the University of Waterloo, Canada, have designed a urinal that has the same geometry as a nautilus shell so that it has this curving inner surface that allows for a smooth flow of liquid, i.e. urine, keeping droplets from flying out. To test this, they thankfully did not use urine. They used a dyed liquid, and they found that in a conventional urinal, there's a significant amount of splash that goes on the floor, but also on a person's feet and maybe legs. (laughs) didn't know this. Um, And... uh, With this new smooth nautilus shell shape, they were able to essentially redirect the liquid um, and they did not see any spillage, I guess, not a drop, (laughs) which is, yeah. So uh, this is a very silly physics one, but I I found it very creative. And also I had no idea that the area around urinals was so disgusting. Maybe I should have guessed that. Um, But, you know, being a bit of a germaphobe, I'm very glad these researchers are trying to keep urine off of floors and feet and legs. And I just thought it was just really fun. You just, you know, every time I write off physics, some physicist does something like this. And I think, I guess we need it. Yep. Yep. (laughs) They found their uses again. You know, that's a a quick and easy one, but um, I just thought it was, I just thought it was really fun. No, I love that. I feel like toilet technology is one of those things where you're like, right, there's someone who has to work on this. There's someone who has to make a better toilet. And I'm very glad that there are people who do that. Yeah. I mean, if you ever sat on a heated toilet seat Mm. in winter, it's the best. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Shout out to that person. (laughs) Whoever did that, I'm a fan. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Tiny Matters, a production of the American Chemical Society, a nonprofit scientific organization based in Washington, D.C. This week's script was written by Sam, who is also our exec producer, and was edited by me and by Matt Radcliffe, who is the executive producer of ACS Productions. It was fact-checked by Michelle Boucher. The Tiny Matters theme and episode sound design are by Michael Simonelli and the Charts and Leisure team. Our artwork was created by Derek Bressler. Thanks so much to Mark Abrams and Akim Etbauer for joining us. If you have thoughts, questions, ideas about future Tiny Matters episodes, send us an email at tinymatters at acs.org. 
you can find me on Twitter at okidoki underscore boki and Instagram at okidokiboki. And you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Mastodon, Hive, all of the social media <laughs> sites that I hate and don't want to be on but need to at Sam J Science. <laughs> See you next time.